And here come the Greeks, led out by their veteran centre-half, Heraclitus. And here come the Germans now, led by their skipper, Nobby Hegel. The Greeks are going mad! The Greeks are going mad! This is Philosophy for Theologians, episode number 12. My name is Camden Busey. And we are very pleased to have you join us today for a wonderful discussion. We're going to be talking about a book by J. Wesley Richards. We are broadcasting live to Machen's Warrior Children around the world and reformforum.tv slash live. Visit us online for information about all of our future programs. We publish them at reformforum.tv slash calendar. And of course, you can visit us online at reformforum.org, and there you'll find a donate button at the top of the page if you're able. Please help uh, to support the work here at Reform Forum. We do appreciate all of your prayers, but if you're able to uh, support us financially, it really helps us out so that we are able to produce and uh, to distribute all of these programs free of charge online at reformedforum.org. Thank you so much for your support of everything we're doing here at Philosophy for Theologians and Reformed Forum. Well, let me introduce today our panel. We have a wonderful one. Uh, the regular PFT crew is here, Sans Bob LaRocca, uh, and the occasional Daniel Schrockjack. Uh, but we are going to be speaking today about a new book, The Untamed God. And to join us, we have none other than Nathan Shannon, who's a PhD oh. student at the Free University of Amsterdam. Welcome back, Nate. It's great to have you. Thank you, Camden. Great to be here. We also have. Jared Oliphant, who is the Director of Admissions at Westminster Theological Seminary. Hi, Jared. Hey, Camden. And who could forget? Jonathan. Brack. Who's the Admissions Counselor at Westminster. Welcome back, Jonathan. You know this. <laughs> that, that was <laughs> my new intro. Are you trying lead-ins? Yeah. <laughs> that was kind of, that was kind I don't of know profound. if that's going to catch on. It was kind of profound. You know this. Socrates, there he is, Socrates. <laughs> Very profound, just like Socrates. Just uh, don't, don't drink. Uh, don't drink that. <laughs> <laughs> that hemlock. Yeah, that hemlock, Socrates. Bartender? Well, today, uh, joking aside, uh, but I'm sure the joking will come back, <laughs> we have a, a book here, The Untamed God, A Philosophical Exploration of Divine Perfection, Simplicity, and Immutability by J. Wesley Richards. J. Wesley Richards is Vice President and Senior Fellow of the Discovery Institute and uh, received a Ph.D. in Philosophy and Theology from Princeton Theological Seminary. So he has some other books going on, too. And he's done a lot of work. Uh, Jared's got a few things to mention about the Discovery Institute, but this is going to be our subject of discussion today, and uh, probably for uh, a, a couple episodes, possibly, at least in this vein of discussion. So we'll get to that right now. Jared? Yeah, there's a lot of reasons why I wanted to touch on this, um, and particularly look at one of Jay Richards' works. Um, he, I was literally introduced to him back in uh, either March or April, whenever the the faith science conference um, occurred that we had here at Westminster, but that was put on by both Westminster and the Discovery Institute, and Jay Richards is a fellow there, and um, that conference looked at intelligent design issues, um, how do you think about science in general from a Christian standpoint, so Vern Poitras was involved in that, and um, his book Redeeming Science was featured there. Um, we had uh, Michael Behe speak, and just a lot of really big names out there talking about that issue. Um, and originally, actually, when I was a student at Westminster, I had come across this book, The Untamed God. Um, I think it came out in 2004, and, and that's really when I heard about it. I took a class on uh, BART here at Westminster. It's a PhD-level class. Mm -hmm. And um, while I was taking that, this came out, and it has a whole chapter on BART. So all, all these things were kind of coming together. 
Um, what I learned was, uh, as I got into this book recently, because I didn't get too into it back then, was it deals with so much of the issues that we deal with in just theology proper, oh, yeah. doctrine of God, uh, systematic theology. And the, the subtitle that you already heard was A Philosophical Exploration of Divine Perfection, Simplicity, and Immutability. And um, Where's the Thomist? Where's the Thomas? <laughs> Bob yeah. needs to be on here. He, he unfortunately couldn't make it, but um, you know we'll try to have him on a future episodes so he can weigh in here. Um, <laughs> so uh, and so part of the reason why I wanted to do this is he takes a lot from philosophy, uh, a lot from theology proper, and I think helpfully uh, writes one way of how to navigate these waters without. Um, hopefully compromising on, on either end. And we can talk about where we differ on some things. But overall, I think it, it's a helpful take on the on the topic. Um, the other thing that I'll mention is Jay Richards uh, graduated from the ha- same high school in Amarillo, Texas, that Jonathan Brack did. Oh, <laughs> so, <laughs> Jonathan against Brack. Yeah, all right. So yeah. he's a native to Amarillo where we grew up, which is very cool. So yeah. that makes you famous. Yes, that's exactly what it means. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's the other reason I wanted to do this. But um, interesting. So well, something's in the water down there. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, at the rival high school of my dad, actually, oh. uh, Scott Oliver. Oh, don't bring um, that up. That's but from Amarillo. So anyway, um, the book takes a look at theological essentialism, and we'll get into defining that. Um, and he takes it from a historically Christian perspective on the doctrine of God, and uh, he introduces, like I said, how Carl uh, Barth's actualistic doctrine of God. And Hartshorn's uh, Sir Relativist Doctrine of God attempts to fit into um, what he defines as theological essentialism. And uh, then at, at the last part, he lays out the problems of immutability and simplicity based on what he discovers about um, divine perfection and, um, and those issues, theology proper issues. Mm-hmm. So um, let's get into it. Um, he he starts out, and um, one section in this book is going to be very technical, and, and Nate and I can talk about this. Nate's taken a look at this as well. Um, he gets into modal logic and possible worlds. And um, just from reading it, I'll, I'll tell you, for the listener who, who isn't familiar with this book, if you want to start with a really good introduction to what modal logic is and what possible worlds are, this is a really good starting point because it's got a great bibliography in the footnotes, and it also just takes you through what other people um, have done in their work on this. So um, he relies on probably one of the most seminal works on this, which is Planning as Nature of Necessity. Yeah, And that is just, if you've ever tried to read that, it's just highly technical, um, but very, very good as well. Um, the other book that I'll mention on this is... Uh, Conundike's uh, introduction to modal logic, and maybe we can <laughs> put a couple. <laughs> it, I, I don't know how to spell that name, um, but anyway, he's he's borrowing from that tradition. I can't spell that name in any possible. Way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but Richards is is very well read in modal logic, obviously, and he wants to argue that uh, God does indeed have an essence. And um, that essence includes, uh, by ne- definition, his essential properties. And God also has contingent properties. He wants to affirm theological essentialism. Um, So he covers pretty much the basics of classical theism that you see covered really from the start of the early church. Um, 
distinguishing terms like communicable attributes, incommunicable attributes, potentiality in God, actuality in God, uh, Thomas's conception of simplicity, um, some of the Protestant scholastics' uh, distinction in our thinking from distinction or from who God really is. Um, so all those categories come into play when he's talking about this. Um, so I want to first just jump into his section on modal logic, and maybe we can get into the different questions that that raises. Um, he says on page 49 that the purpose of modal logic and possible world semantics is to capture and clarify deep and well-founded intuitions that we already use every day. So what he's trying to do really is just explain things that we talk about in theology proper, but really get precise with them, um, try to get uh, these concepts clean in our minds before we go forward and talk about some pretty weighty issues on the character of God, his attributes, and how God relates to the world. So um, I want to throw out a few terms. One is necessity, and there are different ways of thinking about necessity. There is causal necessity. Um, and so one example of that is, um, you know, impossibility, and it's impossible for, say, a cow to jump over the moon. Um, that can't happen physically or causally, let's say. Um, that's not really the type of necessity that we're going for. Mm. Um, it's more of a, like I said, logical def- definition. Um, but modal logic uh, builds on first-order and second-order logic. So, for example, um, if we get into specifics, the statement, I have brown hair, is a true statement. Um, But the statement, necessarily, I have brown hair, is not a true statement because it's actually possible that I wouldn't have brown hair. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably in about five to ten years, that will definitely not be true. Uh, Well, in in older uh, categories, we've typically used the the categories of substance and accidents, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And so something, if, it, if, you, if it's your substance, uh, or we might say loosely, essentially you, then it can't change and you still be you. But if it's an accident or if it's just a contingent property or something um, or non-essential, then it can change and you can still yeah. be you. Somebody yeah. in class, um, Carl Truman was given a similar example about his hair, his hair color, and uh, how that was an, an accident. Uh-huh. And somebody quickly raised their hand and said, and Dr. Truman called on him and, and he said, well, actually, uh, some people might argue that your hair loss has been quite substantial. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, that's fine. Teachers love hearing that. Yeah, yeah. I bet they do. Well, yeah. he was stumped. Uh, yeah. As I, one without much hair himself, I can, I can appeal. <laughs> I, I appeal to the Larry David Club. Or we yeah, can there you make go. fun of each other. But. Yeah. I thought, on that point, there was a uh, – he gives some, some tangible sort of uh, examples, trying to make similar distinctions which I thought were interesting and actually evoked in me some, some theological thoughts. But he, he was talking similar things. He said, um, uh, he said uh, it is not essential to Joan of Arc that she was born in France or that she came from France. Right. right? You know, so she could have been, still have been Joan of Arc where she born in Wales. Right. Uh, it's not essential to Joan of Arc, et cetera, things like that. Um, but then you start to think, like, um, is that true? Theologically, doesn't God determine the places and the times when men would would, uh, would live? So that mm-hmm. so so there's a, there's a sort of a strange mixture, I think. I, and you know, if of course we're defining modal terminology and and how we're going to talk about uh, God's nature and the things that He does that aren't essential to Him. And, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I wouldn't say it's so so uh, so easy to 
um, to say that you know my hair color is not part of me essentially from a mm. theological point of view. Why is uh, cosmetic surgery so c- kind of offensive? Because you're you're you know you're making a game out of who God made you. Why is uh, external beauty, like physical beauty, not uh, you know so deeply important to us? Well, or or you know, I mean, these things are um, part of the way God wanted things to be. Mm. Um, if you know, if I alter my body somehow, I've altered the way God has made me. Mm-hmm. Um, so am I still who I am? Uh, depend. You know. I, anyway. Well, that's what that's what he later goes on and, yeah. and gets into because sovereignty of God is completely integral to the whole possible worlds question. Yeah. Um, but I think the general uh, question that he wants to ask is how much can someone change and still retain their own essence? Right. Um, what properties could you lose um, and still be you? Right. And so, what? How he would answer your question is. Um, is it possible that God could have created Joan of Arc to maybe be born in China? Um, I think, yeah. Um, if you don't see everything as predetermined in a logical sense, um, and that God is actually not constrained to make Joan of Arc be uh, born in France, that he could have chosen otherwise, yeah. then you have to be a little more flexible and loose on your definition of what's essential to someone as a person. Right. Um, so that's why, I, and I get your yeah, point about cosmetic yeah, surgery, but yeah. in other words, what change is essential? What change um, My violates example your seems so, so silly now, but I mean, what do you know? What do you <laughs> no, know I about? I think I was getting at what you were saying. Yeah, yeah, I, what, yeah, like what do you know about Joan of Arc that has nothing to do with France? Well, the, when he said Joan of Arc could have been born in Wales, I thought, well, then I wouldn't know. She wouldn't well, have been silly. No one's born in Wales. <laughs> she wouldn't have been Nobody Joan of Arc. Historical importance. You know, she was raised no. by Wales. But anyway, <laughs> anyway you, Jonah. Yeah. No. um... No, I get what you're saying, because how do we relate uh, our knowledge of possible worlds knowing that, well, that those are possible worlds, not the world we have, not the actual world. I think that's maybe... Yeah, I don't want to de- deny that, you know, that we are, you know, are moral agents and that, you know, we can actually act freely. Abs- I don't right. want to deny that. I just think, um, you know, maybe there's uh, some theological rich- richness that's being sort of um, smoothed out. Well, let's. He actually gives some uh, examples that are found in Scripture. Um, so, and if if I can just uh, real quickly define a little bit more and, and hone in on what a possible world is, it's not another um, physical world that's out there. It's another possible maximal scenario. So, let's say another possible world is every single thing in the entire world, actual world, is the same but I had on a green shirt instead of a, a gray shirt. Could um, that world exist? Yeah, that's a possible world. It sure. doesn't violate anything um, logically or, or actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Remember, remember the, uh, the YouTube video we're planning us talking about? Um, he says that it's possible that he could exist, that a person could still be himself and, ex- right. and have an insect's body. That's an example where you say, okay. Kafka. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah I'm, uh, you know, Jeff my, Goldblum. My, my reaction is he's gone too far. You can't be yourself and not have your body. Well, what if I'm myself and I lose my arms and my legs? What if I'm myself and... Right. In other well, words, it's not so easy to say. I, I, well, st- it, uh, you know. yeah, uh, Ray Kurzweil is kind of... Uh, he's, he's known in these circles uh, of singularity, but he brings up the question of technology and personal identity. And if somebody loses a leg in battle and they get a prosthetic leg, they're still the same person. Yeah. Now let's, let's start 
running down the path. Mm-hmm. Two legs, no problem. Uh, all limbs, no problem. Um, you start to do this. A now heart. let's a heart, still the person. Now let's do some crazy things. Let's say over time you're able to replace little portions of your brain with a hard drive. And your right. brain eventually, over time, comes to be entirely synthetic, a hard drive. You know, and, and you replace your, your eyes with uh, hardware devices that stimulate your nerves. And now you start to replace bit by bit until you're all, now of course we can't do this, but I mean, in a philosophical sense, at what point do you cease right. being you? Yeah. And this is really trying to get to the question that leads us all the way back around to the question of what is essential and what is exactly. not. Yeah. It's hard to know. Yeah, and I, I think, I think, uh, I think how we approach the, que- the the question is going to be so beautifully different uh, as as reformed theologians than yeah. you know than a, uh, you know than a philosoph- philosophical approach is going to be. Right. Um, yeah. Just uh, to follow what you guys are saying, there's also a uh, theologically there's an interesting discussion that we can have here as far as. I understand what you're saying as far as who Joan of Arc is and she's born in France and that's kind of a part of who she is as far as who she is in God's sovereign uh, plan, right? She has like an identity that's located in that and and anything outside of that plan doesn't even exist because it's God's plan. So it's, 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 uh, it's you know, it's, um, it's bound to uh, what God has already pre-decided. But also, at the same time, within that plan, um, Paul and the, the apostles and Jesus himself, you know, our bodies are laid to the grave, right? But that's not where we are. Mm-hmm. And so there's a sense of when our physicality is not necessarily a part of our essence as far yeah. as a biblical theology of who we are. These bodies are not essential, really, to who we are. Right, in in some sense, because we we yeah, die. In one and we're sense, still we the absolutely want to say that because yeah. of First Corinthians fifteen, the promise and the hope of the future resurrection. That that's absolutely critical uh, to Christianity, and 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 even the dead will be raised right. and be given resurrected bodies, though not glorified ones. Um, and we do believe, based on Revelation, that we are body soul unities. There is a there is an importance, a sanctity, and an integrity to right. the physical body. Yeah, yeah, but in a philosophical sense, we still have to, I think, wrestle with the issue because there is a time in which we are separated from the body. It's yeah. not natural. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a exactly. result of sin. Sin, yeah. But um, in a philosophical sense, can we speak about the essence of, of a person, and does that include the body or not? I don't know. I mean, it, it gets difficult. Mm-hmm. We can, in some way, uh, the language certainly does allow for us, Jonathan, to point at a body and say that is Bill. He died. Right, that's and that's true. correct. That's not just a metaphorical thing either. I don't think, mm-hmm. but we also know his 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 soul is, you know, either either in hell or or with the with the Lord. Right. So what takes what takes priority as far as your personhood? Yeah, his soul. consciousness is not in that body at the time. Right. So I don't. Know. So how does this relate to uh, philosophical exploration here of divine perfection, simplicity, and immutability? <laughs> well, yeah, Jared. Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna, we're going to get there. That's going to be that's going to be quite a ways down. Um, first, I, I well, mean, modal I, logic. This is all fascinating, and and it's it's a fairly recent way to talk about some of these issues. Is yeah, it? It, it's been a recent development. In yeah, the last pretty several much. Several decades. 
the the phrase possible worlds actually comes from Leibniz. Um, God had to have created the best possible world. Um, but the technical jargon that has come out really has been mostly Somebody a 20... Somebody there Leibniz doesn't have a chance. <laughs> Leibniz doesn't have a chance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's nice. I like that. Um, has been a 20th century phenomenon. And like I said, a lot of it has been in planning his work, the nature of necessity, where he's building off a guy um, named Saul Kripke, another guy named David Lewis. Um, they discuss counterfactuals and those questions. Um, so, again, this is all technical. There's there's different systems of modal logic. There's the T system, there's the S4, and then there's the S5, which really is the most popular now because it contains both T and S4. And I won't go into all of it, but basically... For the listeners, I'm wearing my S5 shirt right now. Oh, nice. Yeah, Just I, wait until my S6 paper comes out. You guys will <laughs> all be talking about It'll be S6. three pages. <laughs> It'll be Gettier size. Um, Five-hour energy, six-hour power. Yeah, but I'll, I'll refrain from going into all the technical um, jargon on, on S5, but all that is to say that... Um, it eliminates having an infinite regress of necessity or possibility. So you don't say it is possible that it is necessary, that it is necessary, that it is possible, that it is not necessary, that it is possible. I wouldn't say that anyway, those, but I know <laughs> what you mean. Yeah. Uh, not say it, but write it. Oh, yeah. um, You would eliminate those so that they cancel out each other in a modal logical system. That's all that is to say. Um, so that'll be uh, somewhat relevant as, as we go forward. The other implication of that is that what is possible in one world is possible in every world. And same with necessity and impossibility. So um, if something is necessary in one world, then it is necessary in every world. So same with God is a necessary being. God exists in all possible worlds, meaning that there is no wor- possible world that God doesn't, doesn't exist. exist in. That's right. Um, and that also leads to another distinction that they make. We're defining a lot of things here, but there's modality de re of a thing and modality de dictum of a statement if you want to call it that um so that modality de re is what we were talking about earlier with essence and uh contingency um and then modality de dictum is possibility and necessity that's Uh, that's kind of a simplistic way of saying it's good um so all that goes into speaking of who god is what is possible for god what even if we can say it is impossible for god to do um, what characteristics does he have in every possible world? What characteristics does he lack in some possible worlds? And this is what Richards is trying to get at. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you talk about a being who exists in every possible world, all kinds of philosophical and theological problems crop up, especially when you uh, add to that a couple uh, convictions that have, have been prominent in the theistic tradition. One of them is the principle of perfection in God. He, he uh, abbreviates that as PP. But if anything, that's a basic conviction about who God is. God has to be perfect. Um, so if we conclude anything that violates that, there's something wrong with um, our argument there. That's one. The other one is based off of what Planninga uh, goes through in an article and really a lecture called Does God Have a Nature? And that's the sovereignty, aseity, uh, conviction, Richards calls it. Planning, it calls it an intuition. That, mm. That's a little, a little loose. But um, that just affirms that God is both uh, completely sovereign and ase, or separate from what he created. Now, ase, 
No, I'll say, I'll say. It's the foghorn leghorn principle. <laughs> um, warning, warning. Yeah. Epistemic failure. Uh, you, is that clear? Okay. Yeah, that was a great, great uh, description. <laughs> I followed it completely. What's Camden mm. laughing at? Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm actually buying time here so that I can look at no, my notes and well, see where the heck I'm going to go ma- from here. The magic of editing, well, let, yeah. which I won't be doing. In the meantime, okay. uh, there was something I wanted to mention, actually, that from the theologian's point of view, that the, you know, the, uh, maybe the person with the Westminster education who's reading this, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, like myself, um, I, I wasn't sure where to... Uh, as I began the first chapter, I wasn't sure where Richards was going to come from, where he's going to come yeah. down theologically, and yeah. and I was maybe maybe too sensitive at first. But let me see if I can find some some quotes. He, he comes out describing first of all uh, what he calls classical theism. Yeah, and uh, typically for the for the philosophical world today, classical theism is common to Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Right. As he as he begins it, and you know this is sort of. Um, Sort of sadly boring from a theological point of view. I'm just it's trite now, but um, uh, and and uh, but th- and then he goes on to describe uh, problems that sort of plague uh, philosophical theology today. And among the problems are the idea uh, is the idea of the the incarnation, yeah, and the fact that we have to reconcile this classical theism um, with God acting in history. Uh, with God becoming incarnate and suffering, mm. um, things like that. Simply put, classical theists understand God to be a supremely perfect, free, transcendent, and sovereign being who freely created the world and upon whom the world depends for its existence. Again, this is common to Judaism, Islam, right. and Christianity. That's page 24. And um, I was trying to find a section where he actually uses the the words... The pro- the problem obviously this is I'm on thirty now. The problem obviously is that any Christian doctrine of God has to take into account certain biblical claims about God, especially those surrounding Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. So you know the theologian, you know, starts to shake and tremble. Mm-hmm. The problem, blah, blah uh, the problem, dot dot dot, especially those events surrounding Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. So mm-hmm. immediately well, think. He- I don't well, think he's phrasing it that way. He's really phrasing no, he's it like not. this puts yeah. a uh, you know a fly in the ointment that we have to deal with. Right? Not, oh, right. I wish exactly. this wasn't the case. Exactly. It'd be so nice philosophically if Jesus didn't exist. <laughs> I, I don't think that's what he's saying. Well, I don't think you're I saying that. No, I'm not. I'm not saying that. I, you know, my I was still sort of you know reading through it, not sure what to do with that. But what I, all I wanted to point out was that his his interesting methodology. What I found was that he approaches the problem, uh, th- this this problem. In much the same way we would, and in, mm-hmm. this, in, in a similar way, uh, Oliphant does in his book *Reasons for Faith*. He points out that there is a kind of bare theism out there that is so typical for philosophical discourse. And every now and then, you know, they open their eyes wide enough to see that the full content of Scripture, you know, is dissonant with their idea of theism. Mm, and yeah. so, you know, Oliphant's quote was, "The problem is is creation. It's not the Creator." So, but you yeah. know. Um, and then you know, uh, you know he he looks at it from a covenantal perspective. So I I just thought it was really interesting that he approaches the problem with uh, sort of a philosophical language mm-hmm. um, from a philosophical point of view, but in a sense, this problem uh, 
is also a problem for us as far yeah. as how the philosophical uh, conversation usually uh, proceeds. Yeah, I think uh, you'll see this uh, throughout the book, but he's really arguing here for Christian theism and not a bare theism. Um, yeah. He may uh, sometimes sound like he's arguing for bare theism, but he has a lot of sections where he says that we have to account for Trinitarian distinctions in talking about these attributes of God. Um, he also has, when he begins a topic like immutability or simplicity, he usually begins by um, asking whether Scripture comments on it or citing a few historic verses that Christianity has has cited um, in the tradition to, to quote-unquote, prove simplicity or immutability. Mm-hmm. Does he, uh, I haven't, uh, I, I don't know, I haven't read the full book, so do, does he say anything about uh, a method of epistemology? No, that, not really. I mean, you kind of, you have to pick it up from, um, indirectly from what he does. Okay. Um, not just theological method, which I think is about, uh, as far as he's going to go, as far as the foundation, what he's talking about is the foundation for theological claims, so he goes that more. yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's really doing, he's trying to express Christian theistic truths and using philosophy to do so in his mind to make them maybe a little bit um, more clean or even just translate those, see if he can translate those into the philosophical world um, without compromising on either end. I think that's really his goal. Yeah, and and one one thing that's uh, really unusual for philosophers is is that he actually finds a lot of value in in Exodus 3 that's right and in the you know in the in the name which the I found bush. So, yeah in the name yeah yeah which i found so exciting uh to find in a in a philosophical text mm-hmm. uh one of my one of my favorite uh reformed philosophers dismisses Exodus 3:14 as as a uh, uh, one of the most, uh, I, this is a quote as far as I can remember, one of the most cryptic passages in all of Scripture, and dismisses it thus in a footnote. And and um, so it was really refreshing to see uh, Richard's approach in the philosophical way, you know, that I had met, you know, these are problems for us, God's relationship to the world. We can posit this God, and that's that's good, we can work with that, but then God acts in the world, and he's incarnate, mm-hmm. and all these things. And But he gives a lot of value to Scripture, which, which I thought was, as Jared said, slowly, slowly, uh, it, you know, it, what unfolds is that Richards wants to defend um, the Christian, yeah, Christian God. It's refreshing to see someone do that on their own, and yeah. I think, uh, given what you said about the names, he's probably reading uh, Reformed or, or Protestant scholastics on that because the the names feature, you know, in guys like Bob Inc. and and even Van Til. So it's you find it in the tradition. Nice. Um, so do. Do we want to continue a little bit to essentialism? Because there's one other thing that I want to talk about related to this. Um, I think that'd be a good idea. Yeah. Essentialism uh, is kind of defined as the thesis that persons, objects, and entities have some of their properties necessarily or essentially, and then they have others accidentally or contingently. Now, this assumes a realism in the sense that we can refer to properties and essences and properly attribute them to en- entities within the world. Um, and that's in direct contrast to uh, a system like nominalism, where um, all the attributes and the characteristics that we speak of aren't real. They're just um, true in name yeah. only. Um, and that was a that started in the medieval era. And this is, again, where I want um, I would have loved to have Bob here um, so that he can Bob! give a little bit more. <laughs> Bob! Bob! More background. Bob! Um, 
but so he obviously doesn't want to go that route. Um, nominalism is out of the question for him. So if we really do think that um, these properties obtain in these entities, including God, um, what can we say about them and how do they fit together? Um, so uh, going on, any questions on that? No, I'm interested to see what his argument is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it depends on, on which attribute that you're talking about. Um, yeah, one, one more clarification that I'll add is um, he argues for actualism, and that's the view that um, there neither are nor could be any non-existent objects. So this really just says that um, existence isn't a property. So you could something could either oh. have or not have existence. Um, so you could have the property of non-existence or have the property of non-existence um, because that doesn't that's meaningless. That's incoherent. If you say X has the property of non-existence, then there is no X. So he collapses existence in essence. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, it, yeah. In if something being? if something exists, I need a, I need a Thomist uh, jingle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't have that in Monty Python speak, do we? So being is not an attribute? Uh, it's not a property. It's not a property? No. Well, you're saying we can't, con- I, at least I'm under- if I understand correctly, you're saying that we cannot conceive of essence apart from existence? Or if something has an essence, it exists? Everything that exists has an essence. Of course. It, yeah, we know yeah. that. But can yeah. we say the, con- the converse? Everything that has an essence exists? Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. That would yeah. be a problem for Thomas, I believe. Yeah. So something like a unicorn doesn't say obtain in the actual world, but we can certainly think of a possible world where unicorns exist. That doesn't yeah. violate any logic or really even any physical laws. Yeah, we would want to say that a unicorn has an essence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> There's a quote. Even Who though they says, don't exist, uh, as far as I know. Doesn't anyone think that uh, rhinos are... Just ugly unicorns. <laughs> <laughs> I forget which comedian that is. <laughs> um, so anyway, that's kind of just the background, um, the basic categories that he's going to work from as he goes into theological essentialism. Um, and again, he starts with scripture and says, all right, if we're going to say that something could or could not have happened or counterfactuals, as he calls them, um, that is found in Scripture. We see a lot of places in Scripture, like in the Old Testament, when God says, Israel, if you do this, then covenant stipulations will apply to you in this way. Sure. If you don't do that, covenant stipulations will apply to you in this way, um, condemnation or whatever. Um, he also, there's also verses in Scripture that say, um, Israel, if you would have done X, this would have happened. You would have been blessed, but you did not do that, so now you're cursed. Um, so this is this is real language, um, even coming from God in some sense. So we want to take it seriously and say, um, if this would have not been the case, what are the implications of that? Just even the fact that there's a subjunctive tense, you know, it can, can lead to just the conclusion of, you know, uh, to possible world talk. I mean, it's just subjunctive case basically just assumes that. Yeah, yeah. Subjunctive case assumes that, <laughs> as he now talks into the mic. That is very subjunctive. Uh huh. <laughs> Good comment from Nate. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 maybe maybe you can uh, maybe you can clarify for me. I wasn't exactly sure what he was what he was trying to prove. 
by uh, you know by all those references from scripture um, uh-huh. you know lest you turn and I heal you and all these kind right. of subjunctives all these counterfactuals or conditionals yeah um, but one thing that frustrated me was he seemed to 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 draw an easy analogy between um, the application of possible worlds in the relative to the doctrine of creation to counterfactuals in the created order, which I think is uh, kind of frustrated me. So, I, hmm. uh, what? How do you mean by that? Well, um, uh, at least when he recounted uh, uh, the origin of counterfactuals, he made a point to say that this is that uh, the idea of possible worlds came out of a Christian context, out of Leibniz's Christian thinking. Um, um, but I found the way that uh, the way that Leibniz the way that he shows uh, Leibniz arguing for um, arguing for God's freedom based on the contingency of the world or, or the necessary connection between the contingency of the world and God's and God's sovereignty and freedom, I, I found frustrating in the sense that um, uh, creating the world is different from choosing or actualizing a possible world, and so there's a sense in which um, you know we're, we're told to imagine. God deciding to create and then deciding which world he's going to create. And I feel like, uh, you know, my feeling is what this does is it forces God to think discursively. And it forces, it means that that you make a distinction between God being creator and then God being creator of this world, which, which I don't, which I don't think follows. And then it's, and, I just I just feel like it's a misapplication to say that God chooses to actualize a possible world rather than God creates the world. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? No, of course we want to say within the created order there's contingency. We can do things or not not do things, and there are co- you know the covenantal stipulations. So God's entire you know condescend uh, relationship with the world uh, in covenant, and of, mm-hmm. of course history is contingent. So I found that sort of sort of unsurprising and uninteresting. Maybe I'm missing... I guess he's just he was just trying to argue for the the theological uh, validity of speaking in possible worlds language, but... I, th- I think we can say that uh, God, in his ontological status, uh, has no contingency, but his ontological status does not um, have involved in that Creator. That's right. So, in other words, God doesn't need to create in in and of himself, as far as his aseity and, and his mm-hmm. ontological status. So, in, in, as far as what you're saying, Nate, you're right as far as who God is um, ontologically, and it, that which brings up an interesting point in the doctrine of God. God condescends to create, mm-hmm. right? So he. He condescends um, uh, he, he ha- into um, basically economic categories in order to, that are can, that can be considered consten- contingent as far right, as possibility right, and right, stuff. Right, right. Yeah. So that could be in the reform world. That's a clear distinction, right? Um, and yeah. Is that what you're getting at? Well, yeah. So, so what we're talking about is is God's uh, attribute of you know. Uh, Creator, you know that God is Creator, refers to a specific relationship with the actual world. Yeah, with this world, okay. it is not His relationship 
uh, if we call God creator, we're not talking about his relationship with a bunch of possible worlds <laughs> or, or, you know, with a menu of possible worlds. No, yeah, I think you, you may know. be making too much of the language that he uses, maybe not, but uh, I think what Richards is trying to communicate is um, less of what God's thinking process was before creation and more just articulating that there is, you know, even a, maybe an infinite amount of possible worlds that God had to choose from. Um, and he didn't really look at them all and say, I'm going with, you know, option double X. That's not, not how he processes it. But what he is saying is God chose to, in this kind of language, actualize one world, the actual world, and then there are an almost infinite amount of possible worlds on both sides of that that he didn't actualize but are still contingent. And so yeah. he may be just poorly expressing that point. Well, I mean, I, we could blame Leibniz as easily, but I think, I think maybe we'd rather speak in terms of providence, rather of God being providential or sovereign over creation, rather than in terms of God being creator, because that's something completely different. Something, you know, different we want to speak what? about contingencies within history. There are many ways, you know, I could get up and leave right now. I could get up and leave in 10 minutes. Um, God could take my life when I drive home tonight. You know, so, you know, there are, right, you know, contingencies in history. There are not contingencies uh, relative to God as creator. God, God doesn't have to be creator, but once he chooses to be creator, he's creator of this world. Right. God as creator is creator of the world he created. Yeah, yeah what Richards, what Rich, is, Richards is trying to uh, protect the, the idea that God has freedom to create in all sorts of different ways. But there there's this, you know, God could have created this world. He could have created another possible world. What he couldn't do is create a, a world that doesn't reflect his glory to yeah. an extent. He couldn't create a world that is somehow not covenantally related to him. Right. Well, you know, so those are, those are impossible I don't know if worlds. I would put it in those terms. I would say that uh, God as creator is only creator of the world that he created, not of possible. <laughs> right. he, it is not, God is not a creator of possible. He is not a possible creator of a different world. Yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah. he is. He could have chosen to do things differently. To do things differently well, uh, once the world within the created order. But I wouldn't he, say that God is the creator of possible worlds. He's the creator of the actual world. He's the governor and but, providentially governs. The, right. the actual world, which could be realized in many ways, I think. But uh, that's, I mean, that's, the possible worlds are just uh, other, other possible scenarios. Scenarios. So yeah. it's not really worlds. It's right, just it's not like other, David Lewis's, this, this world existed, this world existed. It's not multiverses. Right. And then he said... That's actually a helpful clarification because, yeah, you're right. Lewis says that there, there is a distinction or... Um, different camps of people out there wondering if possible worlds exist. Yeah. Like all possible oh, worlds right. exist. Richard's that's yeah, that. that's multiverses. Yeah, that's yeah. not what, no. Yeah. Yeah. And some astronomers think that, but there's really no, no data for that at all. Um, that we know of. <laughs> so if you think of Van Til's two circles, uh, before creation, clearly there was one circle, just God. Um, the second, God decides to create, there's then two circles, and then there is contingency. There, there was no contingency before the world uh, was created. Right. Yeah. We're clear on that. I, yeah. And, and speaking possible worlds is, is not saying multiverses, but it is sort of, it's a pragmatic way of speaking on a creaturely it's modal, level. It's a, it's a, a convenient way to think uh, from, on a created level about 
the way things could and could not be. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a tool. Pragmatic. It's strictly a tool. Right. Yeah. Which is, uh, I also understand what you're saying, Nate, in a sense of um, even economically, uh, there is a covenant that is established before the, cre- the created world with mm-hmm. the sun. So there is, there's still more work. This is like, as soon as yeah. God says, oh, I'm going to create, that doesn't mean he's just immediately just a free for all. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. it's a, it, there's still. And it's important to say right also yeah. that these, these possible worlds, what's possible is determined by God and who he is. That's right. So it's not as though um, out of nowhere, out of this plenum that, you know, uh, a catalog of worlds, you know, got delivered to God's doorstep and he flipped mm-hmm. through it and picked one. Yeah. Right. It, you but, know, which, so, which can be confusing. This, that's not what we're speaking of either. This is, this is a tool of thinking that is used on a created level yeah. for us. And that's yeah. a good segue. Cause uh, you know, what he wants to do eventually is say, okay, Christians want to affirm that God is omnipotent, mm-hmm. meaning he can do everything, everything is possible. within his power. Yeah, exactly. So you, then you need to clarify that and say, well, if God has power over everything, does he have power over his own essence? Then you get into some really tricky details. Yeah, actualistic and, ontologies and some art. Yeah, exactly. And that's why he God in, choose not to be Trinitarian. Exactly. So then, um, so what, what, how do you define omnipotence then? So those are the yeah. questions. Um, maybe I can, and feel free to follow up on this with more comments, but maybe I can just read a few things that will tease into getting into planning as, uh, does God have a nature for another episode? Um, But Richards, uh, this is really on page 90, he wants to affirm that um, God's existence is profoundly different from the creation and its constituents, that God exists necessarily or in every possible world. Um, And that, that's regardless of whatever creation there is and whether or not there is even creation in the first place. Um, God is not dependent on anything outside himself for his existence. And um, so all these are in the background of um, when he's dealing with Bart, who has his very different take on essentialism and God's freedom and his omnipotence, and also Hartshorn, um, who advocates a kind of panentheism that we can get into um, at a later point. But before we do all that, uh, next time I do want to go into planning is, does God have a nature? Because a lot of what Richards is doing depends on issues that are touched in that lecture or those series of lectures. Excellent. Well, with that in mind, we will uh, finish up and continue this discussion in a future episode, but we want to thank Jared and Nate and Jonathan for stopping by. Philosophy for Theologians is available online at reformforum.org and Westminster is online at uh, wts.edu. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you join us again next time on Philosophy for Theologians.